Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. It was at 11.02 a.m. on an August morning in 1945 that America dropped the world's most powerful atomic bomb on the Japanese port city of Nagasaki. The city was flattened to the ground as if it had been swept aside by a broom. More than 70,000 Japanese were killed. At the time, and unbeknownst to the pilots carrying the bomb, hundreds of Allied prisoners of war were working close to the bomb's detonation point as forced labourers in the shipyards and foundries of Nagasaki. These men from the Yorkshire Dales and the dusty outback of Australia, from the fields of Holland and the remote towns of Texas, from all over the world, had already endured an extraordinary lottery of life and death that had changed their lives forever. After living through nearly four years of malnutrition, disease and harsh labour, their prison home was now the target of America's second atomic bomb. I'm your host, James Rogers. This is the Warfare Podcast. And to take us through this history on its anniversary, we're joined by the brilliant John Willis. John is the author of a new book, Nagasaki, The Forgotten Prisoners. And by harnessing unpublished and rarely seen notes, diaries, and interviews, and the memoirs of the prisoners themselves, he reveals the harrowing story of forgotten Nagasaki prisoners of war in their own voices. So here is John Willis on Nagasaki the Forgotten Prisoners of War. Hi, John. Welcome to the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing? Very good. Thank you, James. Great to have you on the podcast. And congratulations on your new book, Thank you. I'm really excited about it. It's the most complex book I've written, and I've really enjoyed battling with the complexity of the story. Well, I've been working on Hiroshima and Nagasaki for a number of years, looking at it from very much the American strategic point of view about how and why those targets were chosen, the impact and the aftermath of that in terms of civilians, but also the political repercussions as the United States started to move towards this idea of one world or none. The idea that they didn't want to see that scale of destruction in the world ever again. So you had to unite as a global community to put the atomic bomb, atomic power into international hands, international control, so it didn't proliferate. Now, we know that didn't work, and that's a matter for another time. One thing that I have not seen is a book dedicated to the prisoners of war, the Allied prisoners of war, that were around and based around Nagasaki at the time of this explosion. 
What is it that made you want to focus on this slice of the history? It's an extraordinary story. And I'd been to Hiroshima myself as a young documentary maker. So it was a subject I was interested in and connected to. So I was absolutely astonished when I discovered that there were several hundred prisoners of war in two camps when the atomic bomb was dropped on them. It was the sort of ultimate in friendly fire. I think that's definitely one way of putting it, isn't it? Do you know if this was a consideration, if there was any talk at all? Because I've not seen it in my documents that this was going to be quite a big substantial cost to Allied prisoners of war, or at least a risk to them by dropping it on this particular site. It was Nagasaki was chosen, if I remember, because of the Mitsubishi aircraft plant in Nagasaki. But was any of this weighed up against the fact that Allies would be caught up? I think it's quite possible that it was. A Mitsubishi had a major shipyard. They obviously built some really smart aircraft. So they were a major part of the industrial military complex. So that's why it was chosen. But it wasn't top of the list. They were aiming for another another city that day, Kokura, where the main arsenal to weigh was. And that was what the target of that bombing raid was going to be. Nagasaki was a substitute next on the list, and it was quite close to Kokura. So when Kokura was covered in smoke or cloud cover, it's never been quite clear what it is. It might have been smoke from a previous bombing raid, or it might have been cloud cover, but they couldn't see the target. They were running low on fuel then. So there's, okay, we'll go to Nagasaki. And it may be that Nagasaki was never in the list, that one of the factors was that there were Allied prisoners of war there, which made it probably number five or six on the list as opposed to number one or two. And of course, in Hiroshima, there were maybe two or three, but there were no prisoner of war camps in Hiroshima, and there weren't any in Kokura either. So it might have been a factor, but in the end, of course, uh, they had no option if they had a choice. They had to drop it on Nagasaki in one bomb run, or basically they had to drop it in the sea. And it was a a hell of a large bomb and pretty expensive (laughs) to drop in the sea. Yeah, uh, it is really astonishing the kind of decision-making choices that were made about why these targets were chosen. And like you say, the fact that simple cloud cover at this point in time, because the Norden bombsite could not see through cloud, it was a time when they didn't want to drop this bomb via kind of a more primitive radar bombsite device. Instead, they wanted to guarantee that they hit the target, a military target, as Truman had dictated, and they wanted to hit it with pinpoint precision, which is a strange thing to think about when you're talking about nuclear weapons. But when I was going through the diaries of Tibbetts, who was in the Enola Gay, these are things that are going through their mind at this time. And I do wonder whether or not going through the mind of the pilot and the bombardier was whether or not there were these prisoners of war on the ground. And uh, I guess we'll never truly know. But the thing that's fascinating about your book, John, is that you take us on this journey to Nagasaki through the veterans that were kept in prison there and how they got there. And you've got a personal connection to this as well. I have. One of the major characters in the book is a Yorkshireman called Ron Breyer, who was only 20 at the time, but I got to know him because I was a friend of his son. And one day I discovered that he had been a prisoner in Nagasaki, one of several hundred, when the bomb dropped, and I was absolutely flabbergasted. I'd been to Hiroshima, I knew quite a bit about the subject, but I'd never heard this story. And when you look at the literature in the mainstream that there is about the Japanese war experience, there are hundreds of books and memoirs about 
the River Kwai, for example, the building of the of the railway, as they should be, is an extraordinary story, but almost nothing, almost nothing about this particular aspect of the story. So how did he end up at Nagasaki? Take us through his journey to give us a flavour of the book and so many other journeys that you follow. He was in the RAF. He was in specialist communications, some kind of listening device, or but he was quite sophisticated. I think it had been specially chosen and was secretly trained in the UK, put on a boat to Singapore to set up specialist devices there. Singapore collapsed, but just before it collapsed, he was one of the people who was chosen to escape, and he managed to get out on a rusty old boat to Java. And it was in Java that he was picked up after the surrender of Java in 1942. And although the Allied forces surrendered under the leadership of the Dutch, he and a small group decided that they were going to try to escape, try to find a boat to escape. So they marched through the jungle for about 100 miles, and they just were getting to the place where they thought there might be a boat when a large Japanese patrol saw them. And straight away, a Japanese officer just put the gun right into his temple and said, do you have a weapon? Do you have a weapon? And in in halting English. Fortunately, he'd thrown his gun away a few seconds before, and he was able to honestly say no. So the man who he described as having really hard eyes just lowered the gun. And when he discovered they were in the RAF, he said, ah, English, all Nippon now. And that was it. So he was picked up in um, in Java. And Java was quite a, because it was a long way from Tokyo, the rules of what happened with prisoners of war were hadn't really been drawn yet. So it was, I think, more more barbaric. In many ways, it was if there was an infraction of the rules, you're quite likely to get executed, which probably wouldn't have happened in Singapore, say. Yet on the other hand, there was still quite a lot of ability to have some leisure. And uh, so it wasn't punishing the physical circumstances, but my word, if you broke the rules. So in one of the camps, he was in three Dutchmen who lived on Java, decided because they'd done it before to visit their wives. So they escaped out of the camp and went to visit the wives. They came back. They hadn't realized the rules had changed. And, you know, they were bayoneted to death. And as a warning, they were hung on the barbed wire for a couple of days. So I think this sort of thing made him realize that to survive, you had to be pretty smart. You couldn't afford to break the rules or get caught breaking the rules. But as the war starts to turn for Japan after 42 through 43, does his treatment start to get worse? Does he get moved on to different camps? He gets moved on to several camps in Java. And then he gets, he was one of the early ones shipped out to Japan on what they call a hell ship, a rusty old bucket with um, lots of soldiers and sailors and airmen in the hold in the most appalling conditions. But I think that as the war went on, Certainly in their homeland, the Japanese were running out of food. So, of course, feeding, even though they were working, building ships or working in foundries or mines, feeding your thousands of prisoners of war was a struggle because actually the local community were getting short of food as the Japanese started to realise that the war was going away from them. And the war was most certainly coming to their shores. As we move forward through this history... At what point was he transferred over to Nagasaki? And and what did he find there? Were there many prisoners from earlier in the war, from 
from Singapore? Was it an international mix? Was it just British? How were the camps set up? He was on a fairly early draft. So when he arrived there, he was just in a small group of about eight or 10. He went on a hell ship. It was pretty rough, but it wasn't torpedoed. Many of them were torpedoed with absolutely huge loss of Allied lives. They went on a train from, not from Nagasaki, they landed another port called Moji down on the train. And it was pretty basic and primitive. Barracks, a sort of cesspit, toilet, somewhere to eat, very crowded. And he had to march several miles every day to work in the Mitsubishi shipyard. He had no experience, but he was made a riveter. And when you're working high up, building a ship with a heavy rivet gun and no experience, it's actually quite dangerous. There were quite yeah, a I can of- see that. <laughs> that makes you, sense you, to me. Well, you wouldn't want to do it, James. No, I would not. There were quite a few accidents, and he was nearly killed when he thought deliberately a Japanese guard dropped a heavy metal object, and it landed on his on his head. So he then stole a felt hat, got himself a felt hat, which he then padded out in case it ever happened again. So it was quite dangerous, and they had to march several miles. Uh, so the end of the day, they would, you know, they'd walk five miles, they'd work all day in the heat, very heavy due to it. They would then march back every now and then they might get a communal bath. They'd have some soup, watery soup, a bit of rice. Maybe the soup might have some fish heads in it, or perhaps a bit of vegetable or seaweed. They would then have to deal with the fleas, their mats they slept on were completely infested with fleas. So he was meticulous about killing fleas and ticks as as best he could so that he could sleep. And then the next day it would start again. There was no time for concert parties or football matches or any of the things that happened in places like Singapore that were a little easier to deal with. It was pretty hardcore from the beginning. And he told me that there were the people lost the will to live, that you knew that once people stopped killing the fleas, you could see they might have white trousers on and they were completely black. There were so many of them. Within a few weeks, you know, they, they died because actually they just didn't have the, the energy or determination or will to live really anymore. And so that was it. He was different. He was determined. He'd come from a family of 10 kids, knew how to survive in a family of 10 kids, sharp elbows to make sure you eat. He'd done a fair bit of poaching when he was younger or, you know, on the local estates. So Yorkshire served him well. So Yorkshire served him well, and he was careful not to be caught. But he and a couple of his mates, they survived by stealing as much as they could, not from each other, but from the Japanese cookhouse. There might only be a couple of carrots left in the waste, but that's what helped you keep going. Well, it could be the difference between being on a starvation diet, that is less calories than you need to survive, and just about making up those calories so that you can continue to have your your organs functioning that's the that's the sheer level of basic survival we're talking about aren't we john we are is for the sort of jobs they were doing their calorie intake was completely inadequate and so the and the red cross parcels that were sent were very rarely handed out maybe once or twice a year or if they were handed out they wouldn't get it at all they were stored and quite often eaten by the japanese guards so to survive, you had to steal or trade. And occasionally, the local woman might give them some orange peel. There were quite a lot of acts of kindness. And that was risky for them too. So um, 
scavenging, stealing, bartering. If you didn't smoke cigarettes, you could perhaps trade some cigarettes for food. And both he and another central character in the book, who was a, an RAF doctor called Aidan McCarthy, who was in the same camp, they both describe with disbelief how there were prisoners who were so obsessed by smoking that they didn't eat, they would trade their food, their limited paltry amount of food, their meager rations, they'd trade that for a cigarette. Didn't do them any good. Move over Rome, move over Greece. This month on The Ancients, we're heading to the Americas. North, Meso and South. Join us every Sunday this August as we explore this area of the world's extraordinary distant past with leading experts. From the rise and fall of Teotihuacan to the mysterious Nazca Lines. A journey through the ancient Americas every Sunday this August on The Ancients from History Hit. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It is interesting to hear that there were acts of kindness from the local community, because again, we might have the forgotten history of the prisoners of war here, but that means we forget about the local interactions. I, I did some work a couple of years ago on how Italian prisoners of war were treated in the UK, actually up in Yorkshire as well, over near York, and they were treated incredibly well. They almost became part of the local community, and as we know, many stayed after the Second World War and, and got married and, and stayed and, and lived here for years, and their families still live in the UK. Was there that level of local interaction, or was it just a really quite rare act of kindness? I think that there was examples of it, but I don't think that it was regular or systematic. I think that the ordinary civilians had so little themselves, they didn't have much to give. The risk of giving someone even something really simple was high, and therefore you could get yourself into difficulties. But you know, there were some kindly guards, for example. Everyone assumes that all Japanese guards were monsters, as it were. Some, of course, behaved, many behaved appallingly. But there were, and indeed in Ron's camp, Ron had a, friendship is not the right word, but had a relationship with one of the guards, the guard who would pick them up when they arrived off the health ship, and he escorted them on the train. 
And straight away, this man was kind. Two of the British prisoners were really poorly, and he made sure they had water and some food. And every now and then, he shouldn't have done, but he would say, this is what's happening in the war, because finding out what was going on was almost impossible. You know, there were no radios, there were no um, letters, there was no internet, as it were. And he would occasionally say, oh, you know, D-Day's happened or something like that. So um, he was really quite supportive and quite humane. And lucky so for them that they were able to get someone so kind and generous at this point yeah. in time. Putting that in the context, I mean, you know, 105 people in that camp right in the centre died. So it was about one a month was dying, nearly all of pneumonia, because they were working in fierce heat. And then in the Nagasaki winters, they were outside. And so the combination of the two on a malnourished body was lethal. I mean, it's truly, truly horrendous conditions. But I'm sad to say that as we follow this history, it's it's only going to get worse as we move towards that date on August 9th, 1945. Can you take us through that day, through the eyes of the prisoners? It was a normal day. It was a bright day. And actually, uh, because there'd been a bombing raid on the 1st of August, the 1st, Tokyo and other big cities had been firebombed, but Nagasaki had escaped. But there was a major bombing raid. And curiously, two and a half thousand Japanese civilians were killed in that raid. And I think one POW. But it saved their lives because they managed to persuade the Japanese that they could build some air raid shelters. Oh, not what not air raid shelters in the way that we might imagine it. They were little, the little ditches with a bit with a concrete covering, but they were really important. So the day began, and because basically the war machine in Japan had stopped almost, they weren't making new ships or planes or repairing them. There wasn't so much work to do, so they were repairing damage from this raid on the first repairing a bridge, moving some rubbish. Ron himself was repairing the roof of a, an air raid shelter. So they were all doing different things. And about half an hour before the bomb dropped, some of them, the Australians, were told they'll go back into the camp. And they thought they had light duties and wanted to stay out, but they came back into the camp, which again saved their lives because it meant they were inside rather than outside when the bomb dropped. And then... 11 o'clock, on hears bomber, not a, uh, a Japanese plane, and he looks up and sees a parachute and thinks, oh, someone's, is someone parachuting out? Well, of course, the bomb was held underneath a parachute. It came down slowly and it detonated above. The, it didn't hit the ground. It detonated above the surface. He saw it coming down, and then suddenly he was hit by a flash, which he described as blue and yellow and white. There was sort of almost liquid in intensity. The shelter came down on top of him. At the same time, other prisoners were knocked to their feet, knocked off a roof. They were all absolutely staggered by the brightness. It was like a, you know, a thousand dark lights. That sort of level was the descriptions. And some of them eventually managed to find their way through the rubble. Some people, some of them were, were killed, the ones in, who were outside or had been hit by some debris. And it had gone. As one of them said, it was as if Nagasaki had been swept aside by a giant broom. That the camp they were in had been flattened. The guard room, cookhouse, barrack had just been flattened to the ground. And they were completely dazed about what to do. And then he saw a hundred Japanese workmen from right next door running. He described panting like wild animals who were being hunted. 
and they just ran past him, completely oblivious to him. They ran past him and headed for the hills above Nagasaki for apparent safety. And he could see that they had, you know, blistered arms already. They were hanging down like rags. And one of the guards, I don't know whether it was the one who was kindly, but one of the guards just sort of followed them in his signals. And so uh, the British survivors and the Dutch and the Australians all started to head for the hills. And when they looked down, Nagasaki was, you know, it was a light. There was fires everywhere. There were little skeletons of buildings here and there, but basically not all that much. But, you know, that's where he spent the first night. But he, he was worried about his closest friend and looked down on the camp and thought he saw some movement. So he and a friend went back down to the camp to try to find his friend, which he did, who was, and he was injured. But amazingly, he found his rucksack. He had a rucksack which had old copies of a magazine published in a camp in Java in them and some more personal things that he'd kept with him. And it was like he'd got a, a neon sign saying, find me. So he found that, stuffed some corned beef from the cookhouse because it had just been you know, blown down into the bag. And feeling the intensity of the heat helped his friend out and they made it back up to the hill, the top of the hill. So that was what happened. And the stories are similar for other people. What was extraordinary about it is that the camp, there were two camps, but this camp was just over a mile from the detonation point. And everyone inside a mile was killed. So they were just literally right on the edge of safety. And one of them, one of uh, Ron Breyer's friends came out of the camp and saw a dead Japanese there. So, you know, within a few yards, there were dead bodies. So they were very lucky that they had been in shelters or inside rather than outside. Well, I was going to ask how close they were to the explosion, because the only people I've ever heard talk about seeing the blue flash are those who were incredibly close to the explosion. So uh, I spoke with Satsuka Thurlow, who was at Hiroshima and a survivor of Hiroshima, and and she saw the blue flash, and her life was spared by the fact that she was inside a, a brick building at the time, and she managed to clamber out from the rubble. And so putting that into perspective, that really is as close as you can get without being incinerated. I think it is. People died, uh, there were, you know, a lot of loss of life up to two and a half miles away from the detonation point, but they were mainly people who were outside. Those who were lucky enough, and it was a random, that the British, Australian, and Dutch prisoners of war were inside. They survived. Eight were, out of 195 in this camp, only eight died. And the second camp, which was five miles away, the windows were blown out, debris was flying all over the place, but that was 450 people and they were fine. Now, when I was going through the archives, John, I, I came across this quote from the, the mayor of Nagasaki, and I'm sure you've seen it, but it's his way of summing up how the next few days, weeks, months went. He said that Nagasaki became a city of death, where not even the sound of insects could be heard. After a while, countless men, women and children began to gather for a drink of water at the banks of the nearby Urakami River. Their hair and clothes scorch, and their burnt skin hanging off in sheet-like rags. Begging for help, they died one after another in the water or in heaps on the bank. Is this the same experience for the prisoners of war? Is this what they, they witnessed? Did many survive? When did help come? Absolutely. It was very similar. I think that because they were in a camp, they, 
there was a residual amount of food that some of them took with them. They were very sensible going up to the hills and they'd been in brick buildings rather than in bamboo accommodation. But they saw hundreds, thousands of local civilians exactly in that state. They tried, I, I think they found it very difficult. They would see children you know, clearly burnt and struggling and they give them some water and that's all they could do. They couldn't do anything else for them. They tried to help the locals as much as they could, you know, while obviously um, trying to preserve their own lives. So uh, the overwhelming sense you get from them was just you know, a procession of people, some as white as ghosts, some of the people who died, all you could see was a shadow imprinted in concrete on the wall. And so this was, as they moved between the camp downtown up to the hillside, of course, they went through all this desolation and saw many, many civilians. And I think that the civilians had not, some of them had been helpful. Um, the civilians hadn't done anything wrong. So I think it was tough, very tough seeing all that and feeling helpless that you couldn't do much or anything. Well, like you say, I mean, these these are human beings, despite the, the numerous layers of racism that was going on during the Second World War. I think for any human to see this would be truly heartbreaking and at a time when there's almost trivial conversations going out about the the outbreak or the possibilities of nuclear war between Russia and the West it's stories like this and true anecdotes from that period of time whether they be prisoners of war or the civilians that were there that, that show us the stark realities of what a now low yield nuclear weapon can do let alone the thermonuclear weapons we have and beyond today within the nuclear arsenals of great powers but take us back to this point in history when did that relief come did that relief come how were these soldiers finally liberated the camp had been destroyed and strangely after about the next day maybe after 12 18 hours some more guards and troops emerged Probably they thought from an inland town, not a job that you want to do, but suddenly there was, you are our prisoners, and they were escorted to a camp on the edge of town that hadn't been destroyed, you know, several miles away, where there was some rice and some basic food. But really, it, things didn't start to happen until the Americans started dropping food supplies. You know, that took quite a lot of time. Uh, so they would put big signs, you know, tear up sheets and put on the roof, POW or help or some sort of sign so that as American planes went over, they managed to recognize they were. And so they started dropping food and clothing and everything else. It was quite dangerous. Ron Breyer, the man I mentioned, he, a pallet of chewing gum, chewing gum. Um, you, one minute you've got no food and the next minute you've got a pallet of chewing gum. Missed him by inches and nearly killed him. There were um, several incidents of people being injured or killed, whether they were Japanese guards or POWs, by crashing pallets of pallets of food. Because the American pilots hadn't flown this before, the POWs were so desperate for help and so thrilled to see them there, they didn't take enough precautions. Someone, you know, the, the famous story of someone you know killed by a pallet of spam, having survived all the way through the war into basically the end of the war, and what a way to go. But it was quite dangerous, and uh, um, for one of the Nagasaki camps, an American rescue plane, food supplies crashed, one survivor, but the rest of the crew was killed. But they described, the American pilots described the emotion that they could see on the ground, 
and they, the POW, described tears, weeping, singing. They just couldn't believe that suddenly out of the sky was coming corned beef, bacon, toothpaste, things that they could only have dreamt of. And at that point, the Japanese started to fade away after the emperor capitulated. Then the Japanese guards, fearing probably reprisals or similar, just disappeared off, fearing that they might be arrested for crimes. or So they disappeared off. So they were then running the camps themselves. And they were still there, and some were getting frustrated because the Americans had not arrived en masse to take them. They were dropping food, but hadn't, were going to transport them out. So some British and Australians, uh, with the Yorkshireman Ron Breyer in the lead, decided that they were going to go. So they went. Uh, they found, amazingly, that the railway station was still open, or had reopened, to be more precise about it. And Ron said he couldn't believe that there was so much debris piled up that a train could get through. But eventually a train got through and the guard asked them for money for the ticket. And they said, get Mitsubishi to pay. We've worked for them for long enough, was what they said. I mean, that's fair enough. Which is fair enough. And they got the train. It took them two or three days. They had to sell some clothing, shoes for food. A station master gave them shelter and was kind. And they eventually finished up in a place called Kanoya. And there were two American GIs on the platform uh, who just said sort of, welcome, guys. Do you want some chow? Get in the back of the truck. And they, they couldn't believe it. They said, you know, we sat there eating macaroni cheese pie and we were free. And we said, we'd come from Nagasaki. And the Americans said, no, you didn't. No one survived that. How did you survive? But they did. So that's what some British and Australians did. And then eventually they found their way home boats to the Philippines or somewhere else. And they've been up in San Francisco, up the coast to Canada. Heroes welcomes all the way. Uh, then across Canada um, by train, where they picked up converted liners like the Queen Elizabeth and the Queen Mary, the Queen Elizabeth, and went back to the UK. And then skip forward and, uh, and, and meet you. <laughs> and, and, and the rest is history. Yeah, well, of course, all of them were shaped and marked by their experiences. Some were traumatized. Some had physical illnesses for a long time. Ron Breyer took an interesting route to come to terms with it, which was a, about reconciliation. So he, he wrote to Mitsubishi and said, is the shipyard still opening? What's happening? I worked there. And someone from Mitsubishi sent him back some photographs and they started a correspondence. And they, you know, they weren't friends, but they just informed each other. And eventually he went out to Nagasaki and I went with him because at that point, the local authority, the local council was inviting, there was a, a peace park and a peace memorial and was inviting POWs back to Nagasaki a few every year. And Ron Breyer went back and I went with him. And that must have been an, an astonishing trip where you learned so much about this. And, and thank you, John, for bringing that history and that lived aspect of the history to us to, to cash some light on, like you say, this forgotten aspect of Nagasaki. Can you tell us the name of the book, when it's out, and where we can buy it? Yes, it's called Nagasaki, The Forgotten Prisoners. It's out in the UK on the 2nd of August, just a week before the 9th of August anniversary that you mentioned early on. It comes out in the US on the 11th of October, and Australia the 23rd of November. And I said, why are they all different times? And they say, we put the books on a very, very slow boat, and it takes a long time to get them down to Sydney. But, um, 
they'll be there. So for our listeners around the world, they will be there after the anniversary, but with you soon. And for those who are listening in the UK, well, you can go out and you can buy them today because this episode is going out as our special anniversary edition to remember Nagasaki. John, thank you so much for your time. You're always welcome on the Warfare Podcast. James, thank you very much. Thanks for listening. But before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hip. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.